Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a roadmap, a blueprint, a treasure chest of your principles and your wisdom. Father, I pray tonight as we come out of worship into the word that, Holy Spirit, you would continue to move in this place and bring the word alive to us. God, let the light go off in our head. Let the word explode in our hearts, Lord, that we would be able to see truth and apply it to our daily living, Lord. We ask you all this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Matthew 13, finishing up uh, the chapter here, starting in verse 53. Now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables. Remember, we looked at seven kingdom parables and a concluding parable. When Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Wow. Powerful stuff here. I hope that that scripture, uh, is, to me, it's just bristling with energy. I hope it begins to excite you. But let's take a look, starting from verse 53. There is a shift of gears as we moved out of the seven kingdom parables. Remember, parables are stories that use uh, uh, things that everybody can relate to to make a deeper spiritual meaning. Jesus preaches these kingdom parables to get us to understand the kingdom of God. Now, we learn that we are in this world, but not of it, because we are of a different kingdom. If you're born again tonight, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then you might live on the earth, but you're a citizen of heaven. You're a kingdom person, amen? So don't, don't build your kingdom down here. Don't store up treasures down here, because we're just passing through. At the beginning of the study, I used the illustration you know, you don't take a, a rental car to the car wash or change the oil or give it a tune-up, right? Does anybody get a rental car and the first thing you go is you go, you know, get the transmission tuned up and a buff and wax? Come on. No, you beat it into the ground like a rented mule. You, you, you come to a screeching halt and it's just barely holding together and the tank is empty. And in some ways, that's the way we have to approach this life, that we're not building our kingdom here but that we're living in such a way that we're sending treasures into our eternity because we're kingdom people. So he preaches these seven kingdom parables. Let me recap them really quick. We had the parable of the sower and the seed, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. Remember, these are all things that all the people could relate to. The parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, and the parable of the dragnet. And then he used the parable to just his disciples of the householder to summarize the disciples' future in the church concerning the kingdom of God. Now, we covered all of those. You can go back and listen to them. You can get them uh, online and get them in your spirit if you missed any of them. They're all powerful. They're all important. 
But we learn so many awesome things about the kingdom of God because parables tell us what the kingdom of God is like. So each one of those gave us a piece to the puzzle so we can see what the kingdom of God is like. Now, from these parables, we learned what the kingdom is like. But most importantly, we learned who we are supposed to be, and we are kingdom people. So if you never remember anything from any of the parables that we went through, remember, you are a kingdom person, part of the kingdom of God. Not part of the kingdom of this world, not part of the kingdom of darkness. You're a citizen of heaven. So we are in the world, but of a different kingdom. And that's really the lesson that I want all of these parables to produce in our heart. The kingdom of God uh, has, a, has a grip on the people of God as we live in this world. But understand this, the kingdom of darkness, the other kingdom, has a grip on this world. And we need to understand, the world is not going to get better. Scripture teaches, and the book of Revelation teaches, and Jesus' parables teach that the world is going to get worse and worse until it gives way to the Antichrist. And then when Jesus comes back to rule the nations with a rod of iron, that's when the world is going to be in shape. You've got to have Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth. Understand, uh, the, there are some people who think, you know, that well, the, the church is just going to take over the world and everyone's going to fall in line and the darkness is going to go away and we're going to have heaven on earth. There's a, there's a theology that believes in that. There's an eschatology that believes in that. And it's not biblical. And so don't hold your breath for it because you say, Pastor, you notice things are getting worse and worse. Does anybody notice things are getting worse and worse? If you don't, then you're worse. Because if you can't tell when the darkness is encroaching, that means you're full of darkness. And if you celebrate when the darkness is encroaching, that means you're full of darkness. That means you better check the oil in your lamp because the bridegroom's coming. He's not coming for religious people. He's not coming for secular people. He's coming for kingdom people. So the world is getting worse, but the kingdom of God is on the move, and God's doing awesome things, and he's using us every minute we're here to do kingdom things, to bring heaven to earth. So we should never forget that judgment is coming. Uh, it's wisdom for us to forsake all the treasures and the pleasures of this life so that we can have a better resurrection, amen? You know, we can waste a lot of time and a lot of energy amassing things that are going to burn. But you know what? When we do the kingdom things and things that please the Lord and we fulfill our call that he put on our life, we're just paying those treasures are going to meet us in heaven, and they're going to be blessings. We learn that the angels will separate the wicked from the righteous at the end, and they're going to pull the tares that grew in the wheat field. They're going to separate them, and there'll be judgment. So now we pick up with Jesus here in verse 54, and he comes to his hometown. It says this, when he had come to his own country, so Jesus goes back home. You know, if you've ever been away from your hometown for a long time, you've been to college, maybe you, you've moved, you went into the military, and then you come back home. There's something powerfully nostalgic about being home. Even if your hometown stinks, even if it's got one traffic light, a drugstore, and, and a McDonald's, there's something powerful about being home. And here's Jesus. He rolls back into his hometown. And you would think, you know, he's done all these incredible things. His 
fame and his notoriety has spread everywhere. Uh, th- there's all these miracles that are following him. He shows up in his hometown, and you think, what's going to happen here? When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus comes home, and his first stop is at the synagogue. Where does he go? He goes to church. Now, Jesus, like Paul and the other apostles, always go to the synagogue first because, you know, that was the epicenter of, uh, you know, of where faith and uh, the presence of God was to be. So they went there and they taught there and Jesus taught there. Paul taught there. The disciples were always in the synagogue. So Jesus' first stop on his hometown tour is to stop at church. And, you know, because the synagogue was the place where the presence of God dwell, uh, the Jewish people were pouring through the scriptures and they were actively looking through the prophetic messianic scriptures to find the coming of the Messiah. And here Jesus is, Emmanuel, God with us, fully God, fully man. He walks into the house of God that is supposed to house the presence of God and he walks into the synagogue and the scriptures are fulfilled right in their sight. What a powerful moment that is there in his hometown. They're actively looking. They're pouring through the scriptures. They're considering the prophecies. Now, what kind of response would you expect if the promised Messiah showed up at church? What kind of response would you expect if God himself showed up tangibly, visibly during our worship? Come on, Full Gospel Center. It'd be, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? I mean, just we feel his presence and we respond to it like, the, like a flower to the sunlight. Just boom. Well, we're drawn to it. But understand what's happening here. The Lord of glory himself, Emmanuel, the word, walks into the synagogue. Now, Jesus is not well received at the synagogue. John 1, 10 through 12 uh, gives us the perfect explanation of this. Write that scripture down, John 1, 10 through 12. It talks about his own receiving him not. And that's the fulfillment of that. I mean, I know this was written in the New Testament, but th- that's, the, that's the fulfillment. When Jesus walks into his hometown, walks into the synagogue, and the people don't receive him well, uh, it is just a very sad moment for Jesus. He created everything that's seen and unseen. He breathed life and to mankind. He, he named all the animals. He, he created everything that was created, everything that's seen and unseen. And his own creation doesn't recognize him. His own creation doesn't acknowledge him. And his own don't receive him. Now, every person will be judged by how they receive Jesus personally. Think about that. This is what it all boils down to. When we stand before God, he's going to not, not want to know, you know, how diversified our portfolio was, how big our 401k was, how much money we put in the bank, how many vacation homes we had. He's going to want to know, what did you do with my son, Jesus? Because he's the greatest gift humanity has ever gotten. Jesus walks in and his own receive him not. It all boils down to what we do with Jesus, how we receive him personally. And in the end, that will either lead to our salvation or our damnation, what we do with Jesus. Now, John 3.18 shows us our reception of Jesus has to begin with belief. 
Listen to John 3.18. We love John 3.16, but 17 and 18 are awesome too. Don't forget them. It says here at 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. Does that sound like good news? But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So our justification before God or our condemnation before God has to do with our belief, how we receive Jesus. What, not that just we make the mental assent, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You know, most people you talk to will say, oh, I believe in Jesus. But have you received Jesus? Is he Savior? Is he Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? It all hinges on this. Do you and I believe that Jesus is Messiah? He's Savior and he's Lord. And have we received him personally? He walks into their synagogue. He walks into his hometown and he is not received well. Now, the religious community didn't receive Jesus and the response was to be astonished by him. Now, you know, as... As it says here, you know, he, he goes into his own country, walks into the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So, you know, you would think astonished is good, but really it, it wasn't a good astonishment. <laughs> you know, maybe you, you brought a, a test home and you had 100 on it and your parents were astonished. But they were astonished in a way like, who, who is this guy? Who, who does he think he is? And there were two things in particular that astonished the religious leaders. One was his wisdom, and the other was his mighty works. Let's look at that. Jesus would sit down in synagogues when he went. They would bring him scrolls of the scripture he would call from. He would read from Jeremiah. He would read from Isaiah. He would read the scripture. He would, uh, he would give insight and application to the scripture. And he would blow their minds with his insight and his applications. Look, it's talking about his wisdom here. Not that he could read the Hebrew. Not that he understood where to find the text. Not that he knew the scripture. But that he could understand it and apply it in a way that was way beyond anything the rabbinical crowd had spit out in centuries. Wow. This young, snot-nosed, scruffy-looking, you know, not much of a beard, 30-something-year-old guy. In their minds, basically just a kid. You weren't even considered an adult in the Jewish world until you were 30. Quiet. Most of us think we're grown by like 12. We know it all. You got teenagers, 13, they know everything. Jesus is like this young upstart. He's, he's not expected to produce much, to know much yet. He has this incredible wisdom to read the scripture, to give insight and application of it. It wasn't just his knowledge or his articulation. It was his wisdom that baffled him. Now, I've said this many times before, you know, it, it wasn't, many people can regurgitate facts or parrot things that they've heard, you know. A lot of people that come at you with, you know, intellectual arguments didn't construct those arguments themselves. They didn't, you know, look at the, the facts and come formulate a thesis and, you know, somehow, no, they're just regurgitating things they've heard professors say or writers say or historians say, hello, the people who go around, you know, saying they're smart, 99% of the time, they're just regurgitating facts that have already been established. Jesus is coming out with this stuff that nobody heard before. 
And, and wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Are you tracking with me tonight here? So Jesus would look at the scripture. He would, you know, he would make an exposition of the text and then make an application that was so far beyond anything they'd ever heard before that there was no refuting it. They could just sit there astonished. Also, his mighty works, another mark of Jesus and that proved his authenticity besides his wisdom and his knowledge of the scripture was the wonders and the signs and the miracles that he was doing regularly. You've got to understand there had been miracles in Israel since the beginning. You know, uh, at all times, God did miracles among his people, but no one did them at such a rapid tempo as Jesus. The operational tempo of Jesus' ministry was off the hook. Everywhere he went, miracles busted out. And they'd heard about it. Come on, and there had never been anything like this before. So they're looking at this kid, and he's got this wisdom, and he's applying and, and doing exposition on the scriptures. He's doing these mighty works, uh, showing his authenticity, showing that he's irrefutably from God, doing signs, wonders, and miracles, and there's no debate. He's healing the sick. He's casting out devils. He's cleansing lepers. He's displaying com complete dominion over natural law, speaking to the winds, the waves, cursing fig trees. Th this guy's incredible, and they know it, and they don't deny it. But in verse 55, his hometown concludes, well, you know what? We, we know who you are, and we, we don't understand how all this is coming through you and where you got it from. They say in 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? Is this the same Jesus? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, uh, Jesus had brothers. Jesus had sisters. Somebody call the Catholics and let them know. <laughs> Mary was not a virgin until she died. She wasn't assumed into heaven. That's not scriptural. That's fairy tales. And it's blasphemy. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Aren't his brothers with us? Aren't his sisters with us? You know, isn't Mary his mom? Isn't he the carpenter's son? And where did this man get all these things? Now, you know, the things that they say are all true. But in, in a way, you know, they're saying it in a, in a derogatory way. We know his mother. He, he was nobody special. He was just a carpenter. You know, we, we know his brothers and sisters. People who knew you in seasons of your life will often be very reluctant to let you grow past that point. If you're taking notes tonight, I would write that down. People who knew you in seasons of your life will often be very reluctant to let you grow past that point. If you were shy, if you were confused, if you were a goofball, how many were goofballs when they were kids? You're lying. There's only a couple hands going up. Most of you were so goofy. I'd like to see your class pictures every year. Right? We were just, I mean, come on. Many of us, you, you would just look at us average, 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 and nothing special. And here's, you know, he, he's just a, a carpenter's kid, and he, he was an assistant, and, you know, he worked with his dad. And we know all of his goofy family here. And, and they are not willing to let him grow past that point. You're like, well, where did you get all this? Because you're just this. Be very careful not to let people define you. Be very careful not to let people put a lid on you. 
oh, you, you're like this, or you're like your brother, or you're like your father, or you'll never be anything. Don't let people speak that nonsense over you. These guys wanted to put a lid on Jesus. You know, and, and many of us come from a background where when we were young or growing up or coming up or in, in our hometown, if we were very quiet or shy or a little awkward, maybe we were loud, maybe we were wild in high school. So, you know, you go back to the reunion 40 years later and they wonder why you fizzled out. If you were, you know, lazy, unproductive in your 20s, and you just didn't, you know, I know people that floundered after high school and wasted their whole 20s, and then became, you know, career, and got, got into a career, started a business. I know this one kid was one of the biggest goofballs in high school, turned into the, one of the best lawyers in the region. And they, people look at him like, him? He used to drool on his math book all through ninth period. People don't want to let you grow past their opinion or view of you. So don't make the mistake of letting people define you. They tried to define Jesus, but it was impossible. Some people will never acknowledge your growth or your development or your gifts or your potential. Did you hear what I said? These people in his hometown were never going to acknowledge who he was because they knew him. Sometimes it's the people who think they know you. You know, people will never acknowledge, you know, your development or, or, or that you, you, you know, I remember coming up as a kid and, you know, people knowing me a snapshot of my life and then seeing me at a different stage and being, well, where'd you learn how to do that? I remember this one guy I grew up with, he, he, he was playing guitar and I had practice and practice and all of a sudden I was 10 times better than him. He's like, when did you learn how to play guitar? He was like, mad. Try to cut my strings off. I, re I remember in high school, you know, your friends from high school. I ran into a friend from high school, and I, I was telling my wife, you know, my hair had thinned out a little bit. It, I had more hair than I have now, but he, he looks at me, and the first thing, he doesn't say hello. He doesn't say good to see you. He says, what happened to your hair? <laughs> and I was like, dude, you were bald in 11th grade. And he was totally bald, and I, I just had thinned out a little bit. But you see, people sometimes just don't want to give you any credit. They don't want to give you any encouragement. They don't want to acknowledge your growth. And that's okay because people are not allowed to define us. And these people were not allowed to define Jesus. Now, at the end of verse 56, they're basically saying, who does this guy think he is? Where then did this man Get all these things. We know him. We, we've got him in a box. We know all about him. So when did he become somebody special? One time I was with a person, and we were at a meeting, and there was a prophet there, and he was prophesying, a very, uh, very godly man, a very accurate prophet. And uh, they said, the, the person leaned over to me, and I knew him when he was a little boy in the church when he was nobody. And I looked at the person and go, he was never nobody. He was always gifted like that. He just blossomed into what God made him to be. But it actually offended me that this person said, I knew him when he was nobody. <laughs> you got people like that in your life? Get away from them. They're, they're going to put a lid on you. They think they know you. 
this guy, where did he get all this stuff? Where did these mans get all these things, all these gifts, all this wisdom, all these miracles? It doesn't take a PhD in psychology to detect that these guys were jealous of Jesus because he had outperformed their expectations of him. He's just a carpenter's son. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm digging into the pathology of this a little bit here so you can take these principles and apply them to your own life when people try to keep you down and talk you down and tell you they know you and put you in a box and tell you you can't. Come on, I'm trying to help somebody tonight to break free of that. It could be your friends. It could be your neighbors. It could be family members that want to put a lid on you. Mmm. Somebody going to get it tonight. Our response to jealous people is an accurate measure of our character. Let that just soak in for a second. How we respond to, well, they're jealous, so I'm going to act like an idiot now. And tell them off and show them how special I really am. You see, jealous people will set us off. Jealous people will get us in the flesh. When people are obviously jealous, when they're obviously talking us down, when they're obviously tearing at us, nipping at us, being passive-aggressive with us, making comments. See, well, I hate when that happens, Pastor. I don't like it either. But it's an opportunity to display our character, our integrity, to, to really kind of show ourselves where we're at. How much does it bother me when a jealous person comes at me, when they insult me, when they make comments that are designed to humiliate me? How do I respond? Well, that's a good indication of where my character is. Now, our flesh immediately wants to be upset. Jesus could have told these guys off in in a fashion that would have blew them all away. He could have a whole bunch of angels come down and stand behind him with shields and spears, and he could have lightning bolts fly out of the sky, and he could have been just like... But he doesn't. We would. (laughs) That's why we don't have those things at our disposal. Our flesh wants to be upset. Impulsively, we want to defend ourselves. But it only reveals that we're, you know, we have a lot of pride to deal with and that, you know, we're a little smaller than we actually thought we were. You always make yourself look small when you defend yourself. You always make yourself look small when you tell people off. When you give people a piece of your mind, and most of us don't have enough to spare. I'm, at this age, I'm trying to keep every brain cell I've got left. I'm not giving anybody a piece of anything. So wisdom would dictate that we would say nothing when people try to incite us. And that's what Jesus, you know, basically lets them make their accusations, and he knows they're jealous. But he refused to live in their box. Now, verse 57 is crazy because his wisdom and his mighty works, which are good things, which are godly things, we're going to see that verse 57 says, so they were offended. Say offended. Say it again. They were offended at him. What did he do? He had wisdom. He did mighty works. (laughs) He was a gentle, kind, loving Man, Emmanuel, God with us, and that offended them. And where is he? He's in church. And who are they? They're the religious community. Wow. 
So the guy that you've been waiting for for centuries, the messianic prophecies that told all about him is standing in front of you in your church and he's done good works and he's got amazing wisdom and the result is you're offended at him. You see, a religious spirit is not a good thing at all. Never respect religion. Religion is form and function and man's approach to God and protocol and pomp and circumstance and all these things. Religion is the death bane of relationship, and relationship is what God wants us to have with him. So these religious guys are offended, and verse 57 just comes and blurts it out. So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, so I want to take a look at that. You know, why were they offended? Why are people offended by spirituality. Now, first of all, I'm glad to see that the I'm offended crowd wasn't invented in our generation. Do you notice that? They've always been around. I, I'm offended. Well, who cares? You know, that's like, well, you can't say that. It's offensive. You can't read that scripture. It's offensive. You can't preach that. It's offensive. That's not just us. That was then too. The I'm offended crowd has been around forever. They were around since the beginning, and they're around now. And you know what? We need to pay them about the, the same amount of respect and attention as Jesus did. Just pretty much dismisses them and ignores them and goes on doing the will of the Father. Amen. Jesus didn't retreat, you know, and call the 12 together. We need to have a board meeting. You know, apparently I'm offensive. Maybe we need to tone down our message a little bit. Man, some of you need to smile. I'm joking right now. You're like, yes, yes. I wonder what the Greek word is in there. No, there's no Greek word. It's just a joke. But Jesus paid him no mind. He didn't, you know, well, I, I, I didn't come here to be offensive. No, he came to do the Father's will. And if we do the Father's will with the right heart and with good intentions, and we're not purposely trying to hurt or offend anybody, then we just got to do the Father's will and let the chips fall where they fall, amen? Jesus didn't pay them any mind. But there's two reasons why spiritual people would be offended at others. One, the spirituality displayed is false or fake, and it's rooted in pride or error. See, there's a, there's a, there's a time where it's okay to be offended at false doctrine or at false teachers or at false theology. That's called righteous indignation, and that should offend us. Some of us in the church are too accommodating towards false theology, towards heresy. Oh, well, that's what they believe. Oh, well, you know, well, that's what, oh, that, yeah, they're in a cult, and well, just say happy, you know, happy birthday, hallelujah, have a nice day. Sometimes we need to be offended by the false, and we need to speak up against it. But the second reason that people would be offended by something spiritual is because the spirituality displayed is genuine, and it supersedes their own. The reason these guys were offended, because Jesus' spirituality was genuine. It wasn't pretend like theirs. It wasn't religious. It was genuine spirituality, and it superseded their own spirituality, and he was making them look small. And they didn't like it. 
and religious people will never like it when you do exploits for your God, when you lead people to Christ, when you lay hands on the sick and they recover, when you preach the gospel in the darkness, when you stand for righteousness. Man, I wish there were some Christians in here tonight. When you do all the things Jesus said to do and you do it without, you know, and you're just doing it, man, and they're going to be like, you're, you're making us all look bad. I remember there was a guy, he was on a job, and he was carrying 12 two-by-fours up the ladder onto the roof, and the foreman screamed at him, hey, two at a time, you're making us look bad. It's a true story, and he put them all down, and he quit, and he said, I'm not working here. Anybody work at a job like that? He was showing them up. He was making them look bad. He was doing things that they only talked about in the good old days. Oh, Moses did this and Moses did that. How long ago? A thousand years. Jesus did this yesterday. Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead and cleansed the lepers and cast out demons. And he's doing it all the time. So his spirituality was genuine and it superseded their own. And uh, he, he definitely offended them because he was exposing that they were empty shells, stuffed suits. They were clouds without rain. They talked a good talk, but they didn't have any spiritual power. Jesus' only response to them is a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, the prophets of the Old Testament, you might read them in the Scripture and think, these guys were awesome, you know, and they did these great things, and they were, but they weren't well-received in their generation. They were persecuted. They were stoned. They were, they were murdered. The crickets are cricketing already? <laughs> that might have been prophetic. So the prophets were not well-received, just like Jesus was not well-received. And Jesus says a prophet is not without honor. God honored the prophets. They're, they're honored in heaven for eternity, but they had no honor in their own country and in their own house. They were ostracized. They were treated badly. They were ridiculed. They were killed by wicked kings. Jesus makes the point that those who treat people called and anointed by God the worst are usually those who know them the best. We know you. You're a prophet now? You, you were just this goofy little kid. You, you, know, the, you know, this is your hometown. We, we know who you are. You're the carpenter's son. Get back in your box. You're making us feel awkward. We're offended. So let's face it. In our own hometowns, in our own families, those two groups have a lot to wrestle through when it comes to our past history. Did anyone say amen? Anybody have a perfect childhood? Anybody who was a perfect teenager? Uh, the, the church that I pastor now, I was a teenager here and in the youth group in this church. And I'm glad God protected me from some of the crazy stuff that went on in the youth group in church. A lot of times I didn't go and I didn't understand why, but God was separating me even then because I was going to have to shepherd here. So my parents locked me in my room with a guitar and they didn't let me out until I was 25. But understand, you know, that's a big hurdle for them, so we don't want to give them a little slack. You know, they think they know him, but they really don't. You know, who knows how Jesus was when he was young? Maybe he was quiet, maybe he was shy. You know, maybe he didn't seem like he was going to amount to much. 
People often do come around, though, if we remain consistent and produce fruit. Jesus' own siblings didn't believe in him at first, but in the end they did. In, the, in Acts 1.14, all of his brothers were in the upper room worshiping God with him. One of his brothers, James, became active in the ministry and wrote a book in the Bible. So they did come around. So, you know, if people are criticizing you and ostracizing you and saying, well, let's see how long this lasts, don't defend yourself. Just live, just grow, just produce fruit, and eventually those with the right heart, you'll win, and they'll, they'll acknowledge God, amen. I know some of our family members are tough nuts. Some of them you won't lead to Christ until they're on their deathbed. But hang in there, it's worth it. Because that, that deathbed confession will get them into heaven for eternity. And then for all eternity, you could tell them, see, I was right all along. You waited to the last minute. No, don't do that. So Jesus' brothers came around. Check out Acts 1.14. It talks about his brothers there worshiping God. James, the book of James in the scripture. Jesus' brother there, he wrote that New Testament book. Let's look at 58 and bring it in for a landing here. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So I just want to close with this. And verse 58 shows us the main thing that kills the flow of the supernatural. You see, God wants to do supernatural things in our midst. Let me say that again for those of you who have fallen asleep. God wants to do supernatural things in our midst. Amen. He wants to heal the sick. He wants to set captives free. He wants to break chains of addiction. He wants to bring prodigals back home. He wants to restore marriages. Come on. He wants to restore people. He wa These signs shall follow them that believe. Amen? Amen. God wants to do all those things, but you know what kills the flow of the supernatural? is unbelief. Unbelief is anti-faith. Unbelief is the death bane of Christianity that turns relationship into religion. Where there's all these rules and all these misunderstandings and all the list of God can't do this and God doesn't do that anymore and God won't and God doesn't and just, you know, uh, no power, no joy, just, you know, hang in there and wait till you die. The miracles of the kingdom are most often quenched by unbelief. In our very intellectual Western culture, you don't see a lot of miracles. You don't see a lot of de demonic manifestations. You don't see a lot of this. Why? Because there's a categorically, there's unbelief there. Charles, if you go to Africa, right, the people believe, and you see all those things. You see signs and wonders and miracles. You see healings because they, they can't just run to the doctor, so they pray and release their faith and believe the Bible, amen? So, sometimes we're too, we're too civilized. We, we've got plan B in place. But unbelief quenches the, the miracles, and unbelief, stifled Jesus's miracle ministry right here. Look what it says here. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. If people's unbelief could stifle Jesus's miraculous ministry, what do you think it could do to most contemporary churches? 
We have entire denominations peddling false theology, saying there's no signs, there's no wonders, there's no miracles, there's no gifts of the Spirit, there's no healing, there's no spiritual authority. I had a person come to me from a a well-known church that was having uh, problems with demonic affliction and went to the pastor, and the pastor said, don't talk about that stuff. We don't don't talk about that here. You're going to scare people. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they'll cast out devils. Did, did somebody rip that out of the Bible? Is that, is that gone? Maybe I got to turn it upside down. I don't know. When did we stop believing? When did we become too intellectual to just believe God's word? When did our unbelief quench the flow of the miraculous? What is unbelief costing you today? What is unbelief costing the Western church today? What is unbelief costing Full Gospel Center today? My prayer is that God would convict us and reveal himself to us and that once again we would believe the full gospel and all of his word and believe God to do everything he promised in scripture. So Jesus gets shut down there. They're offended at him. They say, we know who you are. Who do you think you are? He doesn't do many signs, wonders, and miracles. And he kind of just, you know, passes through his hometown. And that's the reception he got. You know, you and I face a lot of trials, a lot of disappointments, a lot of hardships in life. Realize this. Jesus faced them all, too. He's, a, he's a, such an understanding, loving God to us. He's such an understanding, loving Savior to us because he's been through all that we've been through. The rejection, his own received him not. His separation from his closest friends, everyone abandoned him as he went to the cross. Jesus knew sorrow. He wept over the people. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. He was rejected and scorned and misunderstood, crucified like a common thief. Yet he was the Lord of glory who executed the Father's will perfectly. And because he did it as the lamb, he rose again, and we're all here because of him today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So Matthew 13 is done. The kingdom parables are done. Always remember, you are kingdom people. You're in this world, but not of it. You're citizens of heaven. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, we just thank you tonight for Matthew 13. We thank you for all that we learned in there. Father, increase our faith tonight. Let us dare to believe your word. Let us chase away unbelief from our hearts, from our homes, from our churches, from our culture. And once again, with repentance, come back to the God of the Bible, believing everything from cover to cover. Every promise is for us. Manifest yourself in our lives, in our church. In our nation, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.